Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Root Podcast. As always, I am Carter Spires. Here with my co-host, Matthew Bartlett, the founder and managing editor of The Roost, your premier source for rice sports news and analysis. Well, we are uh, chugging right along, uh, blithely perhaps, putting our blinders on <laughs> in some, in some uh, uh, if, in one way of looking at it, I guess, uh, with our, our all-season interviews. So we'll we'll get through that later <laughs> later on, I guess, but... Uh, Please continue to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, especially if you haven't already. Uh, very much appreciate that. And as always, you can find uh, everything from the site on Twitter at Bruce and the podcast specifically at Pod. Hey, and for the time being, I'll jump in that if you look at Rice's schedule right now as it exists today at time of recording, I'll specify a time of recording, Rice has 12 games. So... <laughs> If uh, everything on our, our season preview is, is accurate to date, more or less, the, the football information now, I, I really think, as an aside, we'll, we'll get a, a couple housekeeping things in a way before we get to our, our COVID-related news and, and, and what else. But uh, half of the season preview is just a breakdown on everybody on the roster. And so far, that roster is intact. All of 110 players, I think we're actually at 100. Didn't we discuss this? We picked up a backup long snapper. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> last week from from Princeton, Chris Sayan. So we will give you a shout out, Chris. I don't know if we did that last week, but um, but yeah, go ahead and and, and it, pick up the preview, whether or not we're playing football in the fall or the spring or in twenty twenty three. I I guess those will still have players on the roster worth knowing, um, and we'll have previews of of all the games and who knows which ones get play. But you will uh you'll be more well educated than your friends, um, who don't have it. So and then uh, of course, if we have any fans. Uh, not from Rice. Listen to it. You've been catching up our, our offseason previews, the uh, Conference USA one. Uh, definitely worth your time as well. And uh, for those who want more information um, on Rice football, Rice athletics, everything else going on, you can always find us on Patreon. You just go to the website or patreon.com slash at the roost. We'll get you practice reports when we get back to football and uh we'll have all sorts of nuggets and in, in recruiting news rice is still recruiting and everyone is is still recruiting <laughs> even though there is a pandemic going on some schools as we were discussing uh before we started recording have 26 commitments already so uh yeah recruiting is still in full swing yeah willie taggart is done with recruiting and it's july it's a fau that we're referring to which is what do you do like they're going to finish, they're going to have 22, 2022 finished by December. They'll just be a year ahead of everybody else. Is that how it's going to be in FAU? Yeah. Uh, I was talking with a friend recently about, uh, you know, what are, what are, co- what are coaches going to do about the recruiting schedule if this season is in the spring. And uh, he was, a, we're both Bama fans. So he was saying something about like, oh, I don't know if they're going to want a season in the spring because it'll, it'll mess with recruiting. And I was like, look, if I know Saban, if there's no season in the spring, he's going to spend the whole fall just recruit. Like he'll have the class of 2023 done by the time they start a spring season. If there's no fall season, so yeah, I believe it was it was I think Mac Brown was interviewed in. Well, shoot, I guess at the start of all this craziness, I think it was in early April, and he basically said at UNC that their entire recruiting board for 2021 was done. They had already identified. Okay, these are the guys we want. Here's the order we want to take them. And at this point, it's just kind of a waiting game to say, all right, this guy committed somewhere else. So we move to the next guy. And so uh, he said he said that it was 2022. 
that was going to be impacted more than 2021. So maybe we'll get to that point. I don't know. We're, we that we say that a lot. We don't know. We're all flying. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite blind, but maybe more blind than we think we are. We're trying our best. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we do know is that uh, Rice, the university, has recently released. Uh, I guess they've released several like what have been billed as the plan for returning to campus. I think this is now like the third iteration, but I'm guessing this is sort of the uh, the kind of the, the final touches on it that are being air, released air now. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> Given that, uh, what, I have it right here. There are students starting to move back onto campus in about two weeks, in exactly two weeks. So uh, I, I'll be interested to see how they do a partially online O-week, which is what the plan says, but... That's crazy. Two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I technically that puts us air, air quotes again a month away from from football. Yeah. Yeah. Literally a month away because because week zero games if and and didn't uh, I think the Big 12 is, is like giving people permission to to schedule week zero games now or something. Yeah, like that. I think everybody else's strategy and we'll get to that has been let's delay a month and like not start until the end of September or October. And the Big 12 has just said. Well, let's actually move all the games sooner so we can have extra bye weeks to space things out, which is a strategy, I guess. Yeah, but that uh, if if there are games played on on Saturday, August 29th, that is, uh, as of recording time, 31 days away. So we'll see how this goes. Um, one other sport in which we are already getting a look at how these things are going to do is Major League Baseball, where uh, the Miami Marlins have had uh well there were several before a game and then they canceled things and the last i heard they had had 19 positives and yeah, i don't know if they, so, they maybe they did something with the rosters but generally there are only 25 people on a regular season mlp roster so, so. there's there's 30 players on major league rosters at, at the launch of the season and they have a traveling party which is going to include you know coaches staff miscellaneous trainers and whatnot you're probably looking at a group of, um, so I guess backup. So the Marlins travel to Philadelphia to play their their series to open the season, right? And they play the f- first two games, and then they have a report that four players on the Marlins tested positive. And then the the story was that through a group text, the Marlins players decided to go ahead and play the next game even though they know that there had been four positives. And then after the facts, the Marlins got shut down. There were, since then, that was four, there's been 12 additional players who tested positive. So of the 30 players that traveled to the game, 16 out of the 30 tested positive, and some of the coaching staff. And that was just everyone who's there. <laughs> and so far, fortunately... None of the uh, base, none of the players for the Phillies uh, have tested positive. Yeah, but uh, football's a little bit different. There's a bit more contact between people. Yeah, and, and baseball. And the, so the flip side to that, I guess, is that uh, well, I mean, baseball has like they were very uh, sort of blinders on about their testing protocol. I mean, because you think about it, in MLB, you're playing basically every day. And they were only testing every other day with a turnaround of like 48 hours in some instances. So, I mean, you could potentially go like, what, like four days after 
being tested and being positive without knowing it for, you know, like that's a significant delay when you're playing as many games in as short of a time. And at least in football, when you have a week between games, even if you have a longer turnaround, you know, you can test on Tuesday or Wednesday and have your results before the game on Friday. But, uh, yeah, yeah, what I want to know is, is did the players who tested positive of the initial group of four, did they play in the game? I'm not certain. I don't think, I don't know if any, any names have been officially yeah. released yet. Cause uh-huh. that would be like, oh man, like that's the craziest part to me is if they got those four positives and then they chose to play anyway and the players that tested positive were playing like that. It just seems like insanity to me. Yeah, because again, you go back, right? Those four players test positive, and even if they test everybody on the team immediately after those four positive tests, you're not going to get results back in time for m- yeah. more than likely. If what we what we've seen is is true, you're probably not going to get results back. And I guess baseball has some agreement to get everybody fast tracked to the front of the lines, right, for their testing to to some extent. Um, you know, put add a little cash to your your queue, but <laughs> I mean, what happens if? Because in a hypo in a hypothetical world, if we're we're translating this to college football, right? If you if you test your players on Wednesday or you test your players on Thursday for a Saturday game, you have no idea what they're doing Thursday night. Like most teams usually stay in a hotel the night before a game, so we'll say Friday's covered. But Thursday night, any of those players who just tested negative, like, could yep. go could go to dinner. And it doesn't have to be like I think we give you know, like there's the the reckless college student, yeah, like that's been a concern, right? But you don't the thing with this virus is you don't have to be reckless. It can just happen if you're yeah. being you can be completely safe and protective and you can go i don't know go do curbside pickup and the, and uh you know like crazy things can happen and then at that point you have a player who tested negative because on wednesday when he took the test was negative but by saturday when he plays the game you know he's your starting you know call it your starting corner now <laughs> Now he's exposed and hit every single wide receiver on the other team, and he's been in meeting rooms, within training rooms with the rest of your corners, and it gets precarious real quick, which is why the yeah. Mar- the Marlins have been shut down for the time being, <laughs> and they yeah. are not playing baseball. I mean, in some senses, this, you know, if you're going to go ahead doggedly and try to have a fall college football season, uh, you have to look at, like, this is... This is what it's going to be like. There are going to be teams that have outbreaks. Because, like, even if, you know, there are 100-plus players on a college football team and all kind of coaches and staffers and stuff, and even if almost everybody is careful, it only takes one or two to, like, cause a small outbreak. And, like, this is going to happen. So, which is at that point, it has to become, I think, so far, like college administrators have been kind of saying that, like, we're going to we're going to pay close attention to Major League Baseball and the NBA. And, you know, whenever all of these other pro sports come back to kind of see what we can learn, I think one of the learnings has to be like and I'm not going to give like 
this is such an uncertain situation that I'm not going to go crush any Marlins player like that tested negative. Like, like, oh, how dare you? Because it's easy to say that when I'm not a professional baseball player who that like that's what I do, you know, like, yeah, I'm like, I'm not going to go harp on them. But like it further reinforces that if professionals who, you know, are still probably going to get paid, like I would be surprised if the MLB said, oh, you were being cautious to not shut down a team. We're like they were going to get paid for not playing the game. Like if professionals who are going to get a million dollars, whether or not they play today, can't say no, then like the decision can't be in the hands of rice has some smart kids, but the decision can't be in the hands of 18 to 22 year olds on whether or not they go play a football game. Yeah, that's, I, I think that's exactly right. You have to have some kind of protocol for saying this is when we can't play. Because you can't, because the players are always going to want to. Like, you, I, it, it doesn't hold water to me when people are like, well, the players want to play. Like, you should let them take that risk. Like, it, I don't think it works that way. Like, you can't, they're always going, let me, I mean, think about all the players who go back into a game when they've got a severe injury that they shouldn't be playing on or have a, or that would go out with a concussion if somebody didn't stop them. Like, it's, it's hard for people in that situation with an emotional attachment to the game that they're playing to make that rational decision. And that's not a criticism. Like it, it just, that's the way it is. And I, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that, but like, that's, it's, exa- it's exactly what you're getting at. Like that you, you, ha- you can't leave that decision in their hands because they're always going to want to. Well, and it's crazy because like, that's the kind of stuff that like puts you in legend like status, right? Like we idolize like the Michael right, Jordan yeah. flu game is probably like probably what the most like hangover revered sporting event. Like like that is talked about in in lore and and not even just that. Like you just there are stories upon stories of like you know star quarterback tears his ACL goes and throws for three hundred yards and leads his team to victory. Like I'm not gonna like call anybody out but like rice has multiple players on their team like that have been situ through situations like that where they got seriously injured came back into the game and did something incredible and you know as fans <laughs> and people who watch it we revere it we said that's amazing so how is it supposed to be like how are you supposed to flip that switch and say i know we usually praise you for like going at 20 percent and doing something incredible but this time don't Turn off that ultra competitive yeah. mindset, please. <laughs> Which, when it comes to cancel, so the impact of that would be cancellations. And I and I think if we want to shift a, a bit more macro level, uh, we alluded to the ACC had made an announcement this week that they were going to, I believe, it's a ten game conference schedule plus one non conference game. That's interesting, and we can get all the the ripple effects behind that but i noted one little footnote in because getting rid of divisions for this year and including notre dame which notre dame winning a conference championship signed me up but they noted that the the representatives for the championship game in the acc this year should it happen will be based on winning percentage which was very careful caveat to say you know usually you go and you look at a schedule and like oh you're six and two and you're you're five and three, so the six and two team gets to go. We never really think winning percentage when everybody plays the same number of games, but when you don't play the same number of games, that becomes a very important caveat. 
yeah, it explicitly accounts for the possibility that even even with the additional flexibility provided by going conference only and playing fewer games, you still might have games that you're just not able to make up. So, so the interesting thing happened... to me about about leaving that extra conference game in there is that they clearly did that with the the traditional SEC rivalries in mind because nobody in those schools wants to give up the the Florida Florida State game, Georgia Georgia Tech, South Carolina Clemson, uh, those matchups or Kentucky Louisville. Um, but right now, what's currently being reported, and obviously this is in flux because no official announcement has been made, but currently the SEC is supposedly looking at a ten game conference only model. So it's going to be odd is, if if the ACC brilliant yeah right because the acc and you know sec it just means more like so far they've been kind of behind and caught off guard on every major decisions that happened so far which you know you would think that maybe not be but the acc moving first they said non-conference games can happen within the state of the acc acc team which i thought was particularly interesting because there are you know, games, we talked about some of the, the traditional rivalries, but there's also some games that the SEC is, is set up to play against ACC opponents that are going to be crossing that line or are supposed to be hosted by the SEC team in a different state. Now the ACC puts pressure on the SEC and says, fine, we've put our line in the sand and they can always go back and cancel those non-conference games later, but they put the pressure on the SEC and now say, look, if you cancel, everyone's going to know it's your fault. <laughs> Even if nothing gets played yeah. anyways, it's not the ACC's fault. But the ACC will potentially, I think right now we have eight Conference USA games that are tentatively scheduled. Well, were scheduled. I don't I don't know what the operative uh, yeah. tense was, but coming into this week, there were supposed to be eight Conference USA games against ACC opponents. Uh, like I know Middle Tennessee had two uh that that's looking more and more dicey because i imagine if you can get one more game in and your conference has ruled it has to be at home you'd probably rather schedule a uh a power five or a rivalry team just to get that money right yeah one would think which makes it interesting because if we bring it back to the conference usa front and those buy games I, i i am not i am not a lawyer maybe you can you could shed some light 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 on this for me, but uh, I would have to think that if, uh, for instance, in LSU, the SEC hasn't ke- scheduled hasn't canceled their non conference games quite yet at time of recording, but they could. It would be a, an interesting case for LSU to say, you know, it's not safe for us to travel to Houston to play Rice, but we're going to play A and M, and we're going to go. I don't know where their furthest game is, conference or otherwise. Florida, we're going to go all these other places and play. I think it would be a pretty easy case for Rice to get their money if LSU says, we're still going to play, we're just not going to play you. Versus if there's no season, I think that would become a lot more dicey. Yeah, it's very. it, it all comes down to how you interpret the... Usually these contracts have what's called a force majeure uh, clause in them, which means basically like if some unforeseeable horrifying circumstance causes you to not be able to play the game, you know, like a natural disaster or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think you, you've hit on the exactly the argument that um, 
the small the the G five and FCS schools are going to make in this situation is like, oh, you're playing all these other games like. Like you, you, you can't rest on that to say, oh, we couldn't possibly play our game. So, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe that's the vehicle by which uh, a lot of G five and FCS schools manage to preserve their budgets this year. It's, it's going to be interesting because the the Power Five schools are definitely going to be facing a budget crunch themselves and are not going to be wanting to pay as much, uh, you know, six hundred, eight hundred, thousand you know, one, one and a half million as much as they end up paying for these games. Like, they're going to want to keep every cent of that if they can, especially, you know, depending on how much the, you know, how much, how many fans are able to go to games and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that's going to be a whole mess <laughs> is the takeaway, I think. And it is crazy because as just as, you, as you're getting to this, like, as we're recording, it's the very, very tail end of July you know, we're, the calendar is going into August and, you know, in I feel like we've had this conversation a lot, but we got to like we got to like mid June and we said, all right, like we're getting close to the start of the season. By the time we get to, you know, mid July, when when football teams start coming back for, for mandatory workouts, we'll have an answer then. And then by the time we got to mid July, it was like, well, you know, by the time like actual fall camp starts, we'll have an answer. And like. Fall camps is starting like at the end of this week, beginning of next week. <laughs> we keep pushing back, back the drop dead date of we need an answer. And it, it it's some point like I have no idea when that answer is supposed to be here, you know, at this point. But like eventually, like they got to make a call if we're playing football in September, right? <laughs> at some point, you would think they're going to have to make a final decision, but uh, they just keep putting it off and putting it off. So We'll see where we get to. If nothing else, it's enabled us to uh, continue to have our uh, off-season interview series and and get through the games that you know may or may not happen. But uh, at least, if nothing else, we're having a good time and we're getting a, a good insight on how everybody else is is dealing with this. I've run out of uh, what's the adjective of the day. I feel like we've used unprecedented, but uh, yeah, pe- peculiar, bizarre situation. Yeah, spin the wheel of adjectives, see what comes up. Yeah, uh, if if nothing else, I will say, and I think this is this is probably well, I'm just gonna say it is un, un unsustainable to do from a budgetary perspective, probably at the the group of five level. But the NHL and the NBA, uh, actually National Women's Soccer League, the MLS, have have pulled off successful bubbles to this point. I think I saw a report out from the NHL. They'd done a couple thousand tests in the past like two weeks and had zero positives. Like, yeah, the NBA just announced they had a second straight round of testing with zero positives in inside the bubble. So, like, I would, I would absolutely like the group of five doesn't have the money to do this, but like, shoot, the SEC does. You, you're telling me the SEC schools that already have money coming out of the gills can't just say, all right, we're we're setting up shop in Atlanta. And we're just going to we're going to go play Thursday, Friday, Saturday at a handful of different stadiums and like. Give me some college football quarantine edition. Everyone's doing the classes online. I would love it. I, 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 (laughs) I mean, you'd need a small city for for each bubble that you created for them to, to like fully take over. 
Where would the, uh, so, would the Conference USA bubble be in Frisco? Like, would that be the de facto? Yeah, probably. You'd, this you'd, is a... I saw someone suggest Shreveport for the SEC bubble. For the SEC bubble? Yeah. What? I, yeah, uh, a joke, I think. Well, I'm thinking, because right now, like, if you just go, like, to North, North, like, Dallas, like, Allen High School, like, or, like, you know... There's so there's so many big, 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 massive high school stadiums that fit like and there might not be fans, but seven, eight thousand fans like you add that you you play a game at the star. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, you borrow the uh, well, shoot, you could probably play at the ballpark in Arlington. You could probably play at Cowboy Stadium. There's enough. You could do it. I'm just saying, if there's a wealthy yeah. benefactor that it's... loves Conference USA football and wants to support a Conference USA football bubble, uh, we, let yeah. me know. I'm in. <laughs> we, we... <laughs> but barring that, things are looking particularly uncertain. But, you know, we've been saying that for the last however many hundred weeks, and we're still here. So, <laughs> Yeah, we'll see let's where take, it goes. Take that as positive news for the time being. <laughs> All right, and we are here now with our guest, Sam of the Scott and Holman podcast. How are you doing, man? Doing great. Thanks for having me back, y'all. Yeah, it's it's been a while. I'm trying to remember the last time you were on here or I was over there, but, uh, you know, a little has happened. A year ago, I think we talked a little bit about, I think it was pre-Rice UT. I don't know why that's sticking in my brain, but I feel like that's the last time we talked. It was about a year ago, I want to say, because I was still in oh, San no. Marcos. And then... And then I went on the the trivia. Yes. It trivia back in at some point in COVID May? time. Yeah, I think it was May. <laughs> Maybe. I think it was before I moved into my my current place. That's all I know. All I know is post COVID and pre COVID and like the various many places I've lived. So, oh, yeah, so thanks you, for having me back. Actually, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And you we're glad to have you on. You actually have a, a, a time marker for which you can divide COVID time for the rest of us. It's just. The before we'll times. <laughs> Which is kind of crazy. And, you know, before, or I guess maybe now, we're still working through that. You know, this is a college sports and a college football podcast. So typically when we when we hang out and we have these conversations, we're talking about football. So uh, first, we want to, uh, I guess, kind of cover both hurdles of, of our current uh, situation and, and and get to some Houston football. So I think starting that conversation, we have to kick things off with the, I guess the COVID status at at Houston, and the last we heard from anyone at the program was they'd gone back to do workouts and they had some folks test positive, and then I guess it was early June. I don't think I've heard a word from the University of Houston one way or another since then. So can you kind of give us the uh, the scoop on, on what's going on? Yeah, they've been pretty tight-lipped about it. I think um, you kind of alluded to it. The re-entry didn't, I think, go really well from a PR standpoint. I, I'm I'm positive of one thing, just from what I know, that once the athletes got on campus, that there were you know, appropriate protocols in place. Except for one glaring exception here, and it is maybe the most glaring exception, which is they didn't test athletes unless they were symptomatic, which led to, I believe it was reported publicly 
low tens maybe of athletes between uh, football, men's basketball, women's basketball, because those were the first three sports to return to campus for workouts had positive tests, which I think got somewhat overshadowed by what, you know, I think came the week after, which was everyone else, even programs that I think had much better plans than U of H have a bunch of athletes test positive. As much as I don't have uh, a lot of love in my heart for the school in Austin, I mean, you go up and down their plan for having athletes return. It just, it was about as airtight, I think, as you, as you could do. I mean, I think, I think it went so far as Herman not even going back to his old office, you know, setting up a temporary office in this building just so they could have as much control over movement and where he was and what he was interacting with as possible. And even they had their own mini spike of COVID cases. So I think U of H maybe dodged a, a bullet there, deservedly or not. I, I would probably lean towards not in there because I think it, it was just, I, th- I think what bothered me the most was it was such an unforced error. And if U of H didn't have the resources to test all the football, men's basketball, and women's basketball athletes that were coming back to campus, then I think that should have been a warning. And I don't know if that's the case or not, but I think that should have been a warning sign that you should be bringing athletes back to campus. Like it just, it, it seemed very much like an unforced error. They did, they were proactive about shutting things down as soon as it became clear that there was the spike in cases, but it it, di- it didn't feel like it had to get to that point and it felt very avoidable and there wasn't much in the way of contrition from the most senior people at the university, I think, especially including Rini Kator, whose sum total response seemed to be retweeting an article from a guy from Houston Culture Map taking some not very subtle swipes at Joseph Duarte of the Chronicle, who, whatever you think of Duarte or not, is consummate pro and one of the most veteran beaters left in the city of Houston, just implying that the next time Duarte wants some access, that UH would remember that he, you know, reported on some things that weren't terribly charitable to the university because the truth in that case wasn't really charitable so they've been pretty tight-lipped i think by design of what's going on i will say cougar basketball has returned to workouts there's been photos from that samson and his staff are all masked up at practice there's actually a couple of -of out-of-state cougars caleb mills from north carolina and cam tyson from the seattle area um, for for different reasons, have not returned back to Houston, understandably, just I think in Mill's case because a family member had COVID and in Tyson's case, just I have an abundance of precaution because of the spike in cases in Houston. So not exactly back to normal, but I know at the very least the basketball teams are back working out. Again, pretty tight flow of information around what football is or isn't doing. I'd like to think that the university at large and athletics have learned their lesson from the the first restart there but you know i've lived i've lived too long and seen too many poor pr responses to maybe think we're truly out of the woods there i think in some senses uh did get lucky that a lot of a lot of programs that planned well had their own mini outbreak of cases and a lot of programs somehow planned even worse than u of h for athletes turning to campus lsu clemson i don't think had a really intelligent plan, or maybe, maybe I'm just conflating uh, my poor opinion of Dabo Swinney with what happened at Clemson, <laughs> but um, I, I think U of H dodged a bullet there in that college football at large had a lot of programs that got hit pretty hard by COVID, and U of H went from being kind of 
the story of the moment to just one of many programs that had a number of players test positive. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you can, I, like you said, I don't know what the official number they ever put out was, but when you can say, you know, we only had, you know, 12. <laughs> it looks a lot better than, I don't, Houston, or Houston was, you know, a dozen, and, and Texas got up to the 20s, and Clemson, I felt like a third of their team had it at, at one point. Yeah, LSU had a really high number. Clemson and LSU both announced that. like 25 plus at some point. Which makes it interesting because, you know, as we we talk to, you know, in the run up, we're, we're a month away, you know, knock on all the wood you have right now from the Bayou Bucket as it is currently scheduled. So you would think at some point Rice is, is back to to practice. And I don't know if they've I don't think they officially have put out anything publicly stating that, but I can confirm and report that they are back to practice and, and going about it in a social di- social distancing manner with putting everybody as far apart as possible. So, you know, at, at, at least Rice at, at the moment, I can say, is, is planning to play a football game uh, on September 3rd. And, and for now, we assume that Houston will be there to meet them. Yeah, it sounds like it. I think I saw something from Duarte saying both Carl Gard and Chris Pesman are planning on still having that game. And I think that would that would make sense, given, you know, I, I think if someone would argue that, hey, no college football should be played because the virus is currently uncontrolled. And the only way we've seen sports even be marginally successful in this environment in the United States right now has been in a bubble setting, which. No one is saying college football is going to do, but I, I would think if you're going to talk about the level of risk, obviously being in Houston, a place that's fairly high in cases, isn't ideal. But like we were talking about off air, the, the logistics of making a game between a university and the third ward and a university and you know South Maine, West U happen is a lot less than basically any other Division One FBS matchup you could draw up, hypothetically. So, yeah, and, there's still and, and the risk of, re- yeah. There's still the risk of, of having people actually play football, which is obviously somewhat substantial, but there's oh, yeah. basically zero travel-related risk, which is... Hey, and guys, it's, not it's better than you could say about just about any other hypothetical right, exactly. football matchup happening right now. And we're also forgetting about the key you know, thread through all of the pro sports that have come back so far in this country, the ones that have worked out the best are in a bubble. And Rice has a bubble. We could actually play in it. A literal (laughs) bubble. It's true, yeah. I think I think uh, both both programs now have have some kind of indoor facility. I think we broke ground on ours right after Herman left or no. Yeah, right after Herman left in twenty seventeen. And yeah, Rice got the was it this spring you guys got the bubble up and going? I think it officially got inflated uh, mid June. It was, it was some, kind of yeah. like you guys, kind of fuzzy on time and all that good <laughs> stuff. But I, I, re- I just remember seeing seeing you tweet about it this year. Yeah, no, it would it would be good. And uh, I think we talked hypothetically about it. Like, you know, let's just say everything goes sideways. Yeah, Houston Rice recurring series would probably well not probably would certainly be safer and logistically easier than anything that would involve, you know, Rice playing other conference USA schools or Houston playing other American athletic conference schools. Well, and I'm thinking now if we just if we say, okay, 
let's let's make this as you know lock and key as possible. Like we could throw in like Texas Southern and Houston Baptist, not even have to leave town. You play a everybody plays each other twice round robin. <laughs> it'd be it'd be incredible. Actually, my my co-host who really wanted to be here and is dealing with a miracle that is a certain uh, internet provider that has a monopoly over the Austin area. He actually, him and another friend of ours, way back in the day, came up with a concept like that for college basketball and got the marketing people at U of H really hyped up about it. And, you know, do some kind of, it was Houston Baptist, Texas Southern, Rice, U of H. This is late 2000s, about 10, 11 years ago at this point. And the marketing people were all on board. The marketing people said, you know, they'd like to do it, maybe do it around Christmas time, maybe have a charitable aspect um, involved in it. And it got to the Houston basketball coach at the time, Tom Penders, who just uh, absolutely went over like a lead balloon. So, I don't know. Maybe it would be some kind of irony. Some kind of irony. Some kind of irony if Dust, if we, you know, if this idea actually uh, somehow made to fruition, and uh, Dustin couldn't be on the call to take some kind of partial credit for <laughs> his his Houston tournament uh, coming, you know, finally to life, at least at college basketball form. College football, See, that, excuse me, not that, college basketball. That's funny because I heard talk, you know, and I guess we've gone through waves in this. Well, at least mentally, we've gone through waves in, in the pandemic so far. And it, I think it was mid-April when we were at the point where, like, there's no way, like, we're ever going to play sports again in this country. Like, that was like where everything was going wrong. And they put in the first lockdowns, uh, you know, in Houston, at least, and, and other places across the country. At that point, I heard there were conversations uh, uh, among folks, you know, in this point, you know, no hard plans, but just kind of discussions uh, uh, among folks in, in FBS and FCS football across the state about playing in all Texas league. And they're like, because that was the point where like, you know, what if there's all these travel restrictions, like people were drumming up like, well, you know, we'll just put Baylor and SMU and, you know, Texas State, a and all in one game, all in one bracket and, you know, have Houston and Rice and Texas Tech, fill it, fill it out. I'd be for that too. Like just for the record, we actually on our show last week did a we ranked all eleven FBS opponents in Texas in terms of viability and uh, viability interest. Basically, it was a completely subjective. You know how interesting did we think the matchup was? And uh, except for UTEP, which was pretty easy to kind of lodge there around ten or eleven. With all respect to El Paso, which I think is one of the most wait wait. So cities. who was who was below UTEP? Um, I actually had UNT eleven just because oh, to me as oh. someone who as someone who grew up in in Houston just like I, 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 Dustin had him a lot higher a good friend of ours that did it had him a lot higher because he's from the Metroplex but it just it, it it I don't know just doesn't interest me they're they're a good program like Latrell's done pretty well there but just to me the hypothetical of uh, beating Dana Dimmel the former U of H head coach. Uh, Means a lot more to me than playing than playing UNT for the fifth time in the last eleven years. Yeah, well, now you see Rice's predicament that these are now our conference rivals in Texas is UTEP and UTSA and UNT. It's like cool, you and SMU, the the teams in Texas I actually cared about playing, ran off to the AAC, and it's like cool. Now I have these schools that I I have no feelings about whatsoever. Yeah, it's, yeah. Been, <laughs> it's been the recurring theme as we've we've gone through. So you're actually our first non-conference guest as we've gone through our off-season uh, preview series. And the constant theme with all of our Conference USA guests has been there's just not enough hate. Like nobody cares enough to hate somebody. 
at least at least in the West, some of those East teams hate each other. But the Conference USA West at this point is such a hodgepodge that we're all looking at each other like, "Hi, hey, dude." <laughs> it's not. I mean, I think the level of competition has has gotten slightly better. I'm not going to pretend the AAC is the is the Big Twelve or SEC here. So I appreciate that, but I, I would admit that other than SMU. There's not really a team in the AAC. I can work up a lot of, at least since UConn uh, let the door hit them where the good lord split them. Uh, there isn't really a team that I can work up any really strong dislike for. There's some good matchups, like, but in, in terms I, of real visceral dislike, it's just like yeah. I can't. I'm not gonna hate Tulsa now. Have you seen Tulsa? They're not in a great state. Like Tulane. Tulane's a lot better, but I, I can't. Hate oh, I Tulane. can still hate Tulsa. <laughs> That's fair. I didn't <laughs> think totally fair. I didn't think UConn hate was going to get on the bingo card for this podcast <laughs> of the summer, but I'm really happy that we're there. Yep. We can always, also put always the, find a way to make that one work. Still bearing a grudge for Todd Graham after 15 years. D- don't blame me one bit on that. Todd, Todd Graham, <laughs> uh, real, real piece of work or piece of something. Hey, every week we have to remind Carter that Todd Graham is, is now at Hawaii. Yeah, I just had that moment. It just popped in again. Like, <laughs> Todd Graham is now the coach at Hawaii. And I just, every, every time I have to sit there for a moment, like, what? How? Why? It genuinely would have taken something pretty dramatic to uh, make Hawaii dislikable. And, you know, good good, uh, good on Todd Graham, I guess, for making that happen. If Hawaii doesn't play any games this year because, you know, the Pac-12's already bailed on them and they're so far away from, you know, the mainland and everybody else they're playing, is Todd Graham the coach? Like, can we put that off in our minds for another year? <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest. If he coaches a team and they don't play anyone. It's a genuine existential question. <laughs> this is a Rice podcast. We have to have that moment at some point, right? Gotta ask the deep questions. Gotta yeah. you know, think about the the big uh, philosophical, I guess, you know, things going on in college football. Hey, we we might have time for that. Certainly, well, it certainly seems like it. That. Yeah. But is uh, while while we have you here, and and while as as of you know, I feel like I've said as of time of recording because we are moving that fast at, at this point. But uh, you know, as far as we know, the Bayou Bucket's going to happen. Um, so can I uh, first? I want to. I guess I'll start you off with with two questions. Give me your uh, your state of the program with, if you will, you know, last year was the grand experiment of let's redshirt everyone and be bad so we can go undefeated and beat everyone in 2021 or 2020 if there's a season. Uh, and, and then so the, I want to hear your, your take on where the, the trajectory is on that point. And then uh, just check. Uh, have you seen anything since? Was there any spring for U of H or where, there was, where are things uh, right now? <laughs> So, yeah, to answer, answer that question, there was, I don't know if we got through as much of it as Rice, but I believe we got through over half of the scheduled spring practice. I know Holgerson likes to get off to an early start with that, so we at least got some spring practice, I think. It would have been, I, there wasn't a really a real spring game plan because, again, Holgerson's not really big into the official spring game, but there were at least some practices left, but I believe U of H made it through a good chunk of them before then, and really the theme of the offseason was that this is Clayton Toon's team now. Clayton Toon, the guy who took over for Derek King last year. And it wasn't a real complete year from Clayton Toon. I think it was it was the most you could judge him on. He got a cup of coffee at the end of his true freshman season. 
because U of H was laughably thin at quarterback behind Derek King when Major Applewhite was here. And his parting gift was when Derek King basically told the Holgerson staff, I'm shutting it down, that Clayton Toon was the only other scholarship quarterback left on the roster. It's really remarkable. And I'm not trying to overstate Houston's history, importance, what have you. But when you think of Houston, you probably don't think, oh, yeah, that program is an injury away from having one scholarship quarterback. I, am I am I too lofty in my assessment of my own program to think that? Well, you're asking the wrong uh, fan base <laughs> about running out of quarterbacks. But Clayton Toon was the only quarterback. And, so, and he actually had a, his first game against North Texas. He actually wasn't asked to do a whole ton, but had a reasonably impressive game, made a couple nice throws. And on a really good 55-60 yard run late in the game, he tweaked his hamstring. At the time, we weren't sure how bad it was or wasn't. And apparently, we found out about the Cincinnati game. It was so bad, he hadn't practiced the last two weeks. He played it about 50% against Cincinnati, tried to gut it out, didn't look great, and we ended up having to play Holgerson's walk-on son up at UConn. Add another UConn reference to your bingo card. So it was a real dire situation last year. A lot of key guys redshirted. Derek King, obviously was the you know, chief among them, but a couple of real key guys who were supposed to be seniors last year, Keith Corbin, I would say the clear number two receiver behind Marquez Stevenson and Braylon Jones, a projected four-year starter. He was the starting center last year. I think he's going to slot over to guard this year. Both, I think in Jones' case, there was a legit injury reason for it. In Corbin's case, it was purely, we want to have this guy back for 2020. And Mulbacar as well, another running back who, wasn't on pace to graduate in four years. The staff really wanted to have him and Kyle Porter, who played last year and is back this year for his final season, kind of wanted to have all those guys on the same run. And that was, to be fair, it was obviously a very unprecedented move. It wasn't something I expected we'd be doing in July of 2019 in a million years. But it was something Holgerson kind of rang alarm bells about when he was asked to talk about the team prior to the 2019 season. He talked about a lot of guys had never gotten red shirts, that their senior class on average was about a year and a half younger, I think, than his senior class at West Virginia. And he just talked about, hey, you need to have you know, a good group of guys who are around 22, 23, just because when you're that age, a year, of, you know, when, when you're our age, a year of physical maturity is just you getting a little bit balder, a little bit fatter, and uh, <laughs> a little bit, just I can speak from experience there, but when you're a 19, 20, 21-year-old college athlete, that's, you know, constantly training and doing what goes into being a college football player, that year makes a big difference. And that was something Holgerson brought up. I don't think any of us expected that it would manifest itself in that way in terms of just a lot of key guys going. I think a couple other defensive guys, too, Leeson Sprewell, who was projected to be the starting strong safety last year, he redshirted in. And this didn't have anything to do with redshirting, but just the state of the, the secondary that Applewhite left behind was ridiculous. I think in about a year and a half, the new staff has entirely turned over the defensive backfield other than Deontay Anderson, um, pretty much entirely new guys. Deontay Anderson, Gleason Spirit, well, obviously, but he redshirted and just a lot of change that probably had to happen. And, you know, I tell people, I, I don't know how this is going to turn out with Dana Holgerson. I think we're really entering year one this year. I think last year was very much a an assess and see what the program had kind of year. And 
I don't know if it'll uh, work a out. Year, but a year zero. We're familiar with those. Yes. Maybe not <laughs> Maybe not as extreme as the one Bloomgren had uh, in 2018, but I think it was going to be a bad year whether you brought Major Applewhite back for a third year, whether you brought in Dana Holgerson, or whether you got rid of Major Applewhite and then for whatever reason struck out on Dana Holgerson. It was going to be a tough year, even with Derek King returning. And, and just, I think maybe the... The thing that summed up last year the most was by the Navy game, the starting five offensive line was to a man, the practice squad offensive line before the Oklahoma game. I, I want to say maybe other than Gio Pancotti, who had to play like three or four different positions, it, it was an entirely different offensive line. And you saw encouraging things from Clayton Toon. He has a live arm. He's a really, really tough kid. I mentioned the groin injury. Just what stands out to me from last year is the SMU game where it was, you know, typical Houston extreme rainstorm for 30 minutes and then brutal humidity for the rest of the game. And Clayton Toon was just getting teed off on by the SMU defensive line. They were pretty good at rushing the passer last year. And that was really when U of H's offensive line injuries were starting to rear their ugly head. And the guy was still playing hurt. The guy knew in his head, I'm sure, that every third or fourth pass attempt, he was just going to get drilled, and yet stood in there, wasn't afraid, just threw some absolute ropes to Marquez Stevenson. I think one of the season highlights was, a, I want to say, like a 90-something yard touchdown reception by Stevenson to get U of H back in the game against what was a top 25 SMU team, which sounds weird to say, for most of last season. So, you saw flashes, U of H season finale, they put up 41 points against what was a very good Navy defense, but the bodies clearly weren't there on defense. The bodies weren't there, at least in the depth they needed to be on parts of offense, and it was kind of a wipe the slate clean. And now in the spring, at least before COVID hit, this is Clayton Toon's team. Let's see what Clayton Toon can do with hopefully a healthy offensive line, all the skill guys he had back, and a defense that has, I almost like am dreading saying this, nowhere to go but up after a pretty bad 2019 where they had to they had to play, I think, eight or nine guys who were pretty new to Division One for most of the year. I did look because I, I remember, so last year when we, we talked, so Rice was coming out. I don't know where Rice finished the 20, uh, let's say 2018 season in, in terms of defense, but it was not good. I remember watching the the Bayou Bucket in 2018, and Rice was winning, and then, you know, King decided, oh, I can just, like, toss it 60 yards into the air, and Stevenson will run under it, and we'll score. I, th- was, I, think, they, I think Houston scored, like, 28 points in, like, the last 17 minutes of the game or something. Like, Yeah, mid-third quarter, I was, uh, in addition to sweating out most of my bodily, bodily liquids, was getting real worried about that one being a loss. That, that it, was... The, the the final score I don't think indicates how much Houston was on the ropes well into that game. I will no, I say think Houston won by like two touchdowns or seventeen points. Maybe it was uh that was painful. But Rice had the very 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 bad passing defense at that point. I went and pulled up the numbers. Uh, Houston's was actually worse last year. They had the hundred twenty fourth ranked passing defense in the country, which is maybe UConn bad. Yeah, and That's not great. A lot of it just comes back to the fact that you had literally one division one corner on the roster and i was i'm high on that uh, that guy he was um demarion williams he was actually the very first recruit the staff flipped he was supposed to go to smu and then enrolled at u of h last minute for the spring semester of 2019 was a 
Juco All-American and had some good games last year. He held C.D. Lamb way under his season average for Oklahoma. Gabe Davis for UCF didn't have a good game. He ended up being drafted by the Bills, I think. He got some really tough matchups, and a couple of them he didn't do so hot on, but I think he was given about the most difficult first-year Division One cornerback can be given at this level and showed some promise. The only problem was there wasn't a soul at the position besides him who was up to the challenge of playing Division One football. It was a real bad situation. One of the questions I genuinely wonder is if Major Applewhite came back, who were they going to play in the second? I, I, I have no idea because they were guys who weren't good enough to get on the field for what was a pretty bad pass defense 2018, and it was all the guys who couldn't break the two deep on that team. So wasn't the best defense. I actually am cautiously optimistic about Joe Cawthon, the second-year coordinator who Houston got out of Arkansas State. They at least at times tried to create pressure. You could see what they were trying to do, but you could also see pretty clearly that the horses weren't there to do anything other than be good for maybe a quarter or two. I, I want to say Houston had like one of the worst, if not the worst, second half defense in the country. It was just almost predictable how just the wheels would come off in the second half because it, it was just a lot of guys who just weren't used to playing the full four quarters. Yeah, and I, yeah. Fortunately for you, Major Applewhite now back in, uh, well, for his a stint in Saban's Reform School for quarterbacks for head coaches in Tuscaloosa for his second stint in Tuscaloosa under Saban, he was uh, the offensive Still coordinator that there in two thousand seven. Yep. Look at that sweet, sweet buyout money while he get pays get paid eighty thousand dollars get screamed at by Nick Saban and their OC. At least I assume that's what that that's what that job entails. From six feet apart now. True. Yeah. That's at, least, distance. at least yeah, at least you can't scream in your face now. But I, I have a feeling Saban's loud enough that you could put him fifteen feet, twenty feet, thirty feet apart and he'd still get his point across. Yeah, he'll manage. Yeah. Yep. So we'll see. And then I guess so we've hit a little bit on the, uh, the on the defense, but uh, one thing I noticed, and I think I, when I was talking with you guys, man, when I started putting together the Rice season preview, when we went through some of these guys, because it really felt like since since we met two years ago, I was learning an entirely different roster. It felt like that the turnover has been that stark. the The secondary, I think I I, one of the, I was most intrigued by. It's been a lot of new faces added. Uh, in the past, I don't know, six months, a, a year from the that that season ending in particular, I know that uh, Marcus Jones from Troy, a Sunbelt Conference freshman of the year, he was one of those guys that picked up a, a lot of interest when he hit the portal. And so between him and, and you mentioned a couple guys, you know, it, it, if you put all new faces there, like your your logic sounds s- strong that it should be better to at least some degree. Yeah, it, it kind of only has nowhere to go but up. I think how much better really determines what Houston will do this year. It doesn't won't take much for Marcus Jones, who was an All-American at Troy, to be better than whoever the corner besides Demarion Williams was in Houston last year. I think that's pretty low bar to clear. But I, I still think, yeah, it's still have some questions to answer. I, I think Art Green was a really nice kind of late in the game pickup from junior college was a Juco All-American at Hutchinson actually played with a guy who sat out last year um, Kellen Clemens who played at Minnesota for semester but because he enrolled there for the spring had to sit out 2019 but will be back in 2020 as a redshirt junior so just 
a lot of new faces there at safety two, top of one Iki, who got on the field as a true freshman at Oklahoma. Jordan Moore was a pretty highly tad recruit out of high school, redshirted A&M, had a little bit of off the field stuff early uh, last season, but by the end of the season was playing a fair amount as the nickelback and will now rotate with um, Giovanni Stewart, who played for Holgerson at West Virginia. The two of them will, I think, rotate snaps at that nickelback position. And Grant Stewart, who I think if any one player really stood out for U of H last year defensively, it was Grant Stewart just because he plays. He's, I think, the closest thing to Troy Palomalu that I've seen. And maybe not in terms of Troy Palomalu <laughs> being the All-American, but in terms of having the having the long hair and flying around 100 miles per hour. I think Grant Stewart's a solid player. I wouldn't put him physically, you know, looking, on, like Troy physically looking like Troy Palomalu. <laughs> I, I, would, I would say also, you know, is, is a, uh, a store brand AAC Troy Palomalu. I think he could, he could definitely be an all-conference pick this year. At Future linebacker, uh, head, and, head and shoulders in Dorsey. Cer- certainly, uh, if there's a all-hair, all-American team, I don't think there's anyone other than Grant Stewart uh, at the linebacker position. But Hey, that NLI stuff, it's coming down the pipe. That's true. I, I, he's a senior this year, so I, I, you know, I feel bad that he didn't have another year or two to kind of get that, uh, get that going. But just a lot of guys who were kind of thrown into the fire last year. You also have Gleason Spreel coming back, who I think was real promising on an awful U of H defense in 2018. That there's there's competition. Every there's competition and there's experience. And I don't think I could have told you honestly that there were either of those two things on the defensive side of the ball for U of H last year. I think. Last year, it was just, well, at least we have a defensive coordinator we all don't think is wildly incompetent and isn't going to waste the last two years of it, Oliver. And we felt a little bit better about that. But once you really looked at who was back and who was in the schedule, it was just hard to feel very good about what happened. And like you pointed out, just wasn't the most productive year. Hope from UH respective experience and some real promising new faces can change that. <laughs> Obviously, a whole lot going on <laughs> off the field right now. but. I'm certainly more optimistic about UH's defense than I was 12 months ago, which I guess is damning a faint praise, but so be it. Well, and I do have to hit on one more Alabama tie. Well, on D- <laughs> we've hit on UConn a couple times. We've got to go back to the Alabama well. We've got to balance things out, right? Right. Um, I think, you know, Holgerson, with everybody he's brought in, has, has made waves, and I think a large portion... Uh, of how successful the uh, secondary has been. Obviously, they've gotten better talent-wise. Is going to be that front seven. And uh, I do have to uh, mention the the brief Houston tenure of former Alabama five-star transfer, uh, Ayabi Enoma, who uh, is not going to play a down for the Cougars. Um, we had to get that that brief little minuet in there before we get to the uh, the rest of the front seven who's going to be there. Yeah, it was, and, you know, ultimately, even even as much as it was a tease to, you know, have this unbelievable talent on your roster briefly and, you know, wonder what a five-star who was good enough to at least get on the field some as a freshman at Bama could do, it, it was, you know, ultimately, if you're in U of H's position, obviously, if the off-field stuff is serious legal, you don't touch that, and U of H hasn't in terms of any of the transfers. It brought in in Enoma's case. I, it didn't sound like it was legal coming out of um, Alabama, but it certainly it, sounded. It's, uh, it certainly. I think the scuttlebutt from Alabama was that I know he was. Uh, 
he was kicked out of school, not yes. kicked off the team. Yep, um, I remember Saban I, saying that on the record. The scuttlebutt, I think, was academics. Um, I don't know any details beyond that. I mean, but he didn't. I think he went to Maryland after that, and then didn't didn't. No, stick it was he Maryland was considering either. it was it was Maryland. And he was considering Maryland and Houston. And we heard that I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. We're in the mix here, but he's probably he's from Baltimore, so he's probably gonna go to the a- I mean, it's almost called maryland acc it's so weird that they're big 10 as an aside yeah. i'm not gonna go down the rabbit hole but just <laughs> even more so than Rutgers for me which is, don't get me wrong this is weird it's own right it's just so weird that maryland's big. anyway we figured we heard that's okay cool it's nice we're in the mix probably not happening and then when we heard we got him we we're just like oh man a five star a five star that you know didn't have any obvious legal stuff attached to him yeah let's let's see what this guy can do and i think we're in the position the holgerson's in right now kind of early in this rebuild you you obviously don't take some of the chances i think to be very serious here baylor is a really strong example of why you don't just grab anyone and let the character sort itself out once they get there but yeah i, I would 100 take that if there's a a five-star you know defensive tackle out there right now who got kicked out of insert name of blue blood here for something that wasn't legal and U of H was in the mix, I would still say, Hey, if we've got the scholarships, let's do it. Cause when you're in U of H's position, you have to kind of rely on bounce backs. I, I think something U of H has started to do, although a lot of those guys are currently sitting out is a couple of kids, a kid from Lamar and a kid from Manville who went to Missouri and Texas tech respectively wanted to play closer to home. And, those guys are going to finish up their college career here. So you might get some of those guys that go a little further afield and then want to finish up their careers closer to home. And that's something SMU's done to great positive effect. I think it's something U of H is trying to do. So when you're UH's position, you got to take risks sometimes. But uh, Anoma certainly wasn't uh, wasn't one that really uh, worked out for the best and kind of a what might have been that's going to rattle around in all of our minds. Yeah, I had to check. He's at Tennessee Martin now. Yeah, I I really thought he was going to go JUCO because he I think is still technically a sophomore and maybe yeah. get one last shot at a Division One team, but you know, what do I know? Hey, he might not be playing football for anyone at this rate, so yeah, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but uh, we will. We've talked, man. We've talked a lot of Houston defense, which is not something I really expected, <laughs> you know. We, but uh, we do need to. So first, first question. And as a peace offering for his new offensive line, has has new Houston starting quarterback Clayton Tune printed Tune Squad T-shirts for his his new front five. <laughs> he really sh- he really should. the The pun is just uh, is out there for the. T- I mean, really, you can do. Can so you much. pass that along? I, I felt really proud about that one. If it's not, well, I'll, I'll see, I'm I'll sure see, it has. Uh, I'll see if Clayton's DMs are open and uh, pass it along. <laughs> Yeah, you do. I mean, honestly, the last two you can do a lot with King. Obviously, that's right for pun or wordplay. Yeah. Tune, same thing. Yeah, you know, we. I guess we've been blessed in that regard. One of the many blessings. We'll take it. But uh, you, you've, you've hit on, I guess, uh, the the pieces coming back. I, I really just want to hit a little bit. You've touched on it. Clayton Tune's career has been so strange that he's been the you know, in case of emergency, Blake break the Blake break the glass guy for the last couple years at, at, at U of H. Is it, you know, what do you see? Is how much of a mental difference? I mean, you guess I guess you got, got a little bit of spring practice in, but is it going to be when 
he knows from the get-go that this is your team and we're building this offense for you. I think it certainly can't hurt. I, I think he's not going to be looking over his shoulder. Uh, the only other quarterbacks right now are Holgerson's son, who technically a walk-on. He did have D1 FBS offers out of high school in West Virginia, but obviously, obviously Dad can afford a full room and board, so he's not a scholarship guy in U of H. And Sofiane Massoud, who played, I want to say, at Cy Ranch, who good good high school quarterback, but probably not someone ready for Division One FBS action. So definitely his team. I think what you saw last year, and like I mentioned earlier, he's a tough kid. He's clearly someone who has a lot of confidence in his arm and a guy capable of just making about any throw. Like he made some really high degree of difficulty throws, but also a guy who the decision-making, I think like any true sophomore who's thrown into a difficult situation, sometimes he's going to try to do too much. The decision-making wasn't all there. I think the Navy game sums it up best. He was going up against a Navy defense that by all metrics was good to very good last year and threw four or five touchdowns, but also threw four or five picks. And the touchdown passes were (laughs) spectacular. The picks were ones that would make you hold your head in your hands, which kind of is endemic of a sophomore trying to do too much and trying to will a team with maybe not exactly the ideal supporting cast around him yet to a win. So I think that's the neatest summary of Clayton Toon's sophomore year. He showed promise. I think one thing we were all consistently surprised about is he's not a running threat like De'Aaron King because, you know, King had the unbelievable burst. And I think even more than the raw speed, King was just a very intelligent runner in terms of patience, knowing spaces he could get through and all that stuff was maybe not the raw athlete that Greg Ward before him was, but was just as savvy in terms of finding open space and finding yards to get to in the field. And Clayton Toon's not D.R. King in that regard, but Clayton Toon is the kind of quarterback that defensive coordinator, when Brian Smith preps for this game, he is going to be prepping for Clayton Toon to use his legs at least as a change of pace. And I think that's that's something Holgerson shows surprising willingness to do is to use Clayton Toon as a runner when the situation called for it. And I think especially when you're out of bodies behind him. Exactly. <laughs> and I think really just what's going to be for him is going to be this. I think he has the things you can't teach arm strength. You can't teach toughness in the yips. John O'Corn, who God, now it's been six or seven years since he was a quarterback at U of H had the stuff, but it became clear about halfway through the sophomore season, he developed some habits that he just couldn't get coached out of him. And also, frankly, he wasn't getting great offensive coaching from the U of H staff at the time. And you never really saw that come together at Michigan, even with probably someone a little bit more savvy with quarterbacks and John Harbaugh. Some guys, you can't coach certain things out of. And I don't think Clayton Toon has those things, but he does need to take a step forward in terms of decision making. And, you know, when when do you cut bait and throw the ball away? When can I extend the play? When you know, What's the degree of dif- difficulty of throw that I can make you know, ex- and make it acceptable, not be like the Navy game where it's alternating spectacular throws and just jaw-droppingly bad interceptions. So and in that regard, I don't think he's really that much different than any other guy who was asked to play the position as a true sophomore. I think 
you saw his growing pains more so than a lot of guys because a lot of guys are still holding a clipboard and signing to the starter at that point in their career. Which, man, which is which is what makes me all the more curious to, like, I want to see this football, you know, of course, caveat, health and all other outside circumstances going first. Like, if we can have it safely, like, the, the Rice U of H game this year, I'm really curious about because, you know, on paper, like, the Rice defense coming back is going to be really salty. And, you know, we have so many unknowns on the Houston defense that we think it's going to be okay. And both offenses are, I'd say U of H probably just from a track record from Holgerson's standpoint probably has the leg up there. Like, on paper, this seems like a game that, you know, could be very interesting. Yeah, I think the... The win Rice's offense is on the field and U of H's defense on the field is interesting, kind of like you were saying, because, you know, I think both both of those you know units are expected to take a take a step forward. But, you know, the last two years of production have not been certainly have not been pretty from the U of H defense. I'm probably not speaking out of turn by saying they haven't been really pretty from a Rice offensive standpoint either. And yeah, I think except I think, in the first half of the Middle Tennessee State game last year. <laughs> That was in a the, shining moment. <laughs> in the first half of uh, the Bayou Bucket in 2018. Yeah. Just yes. despite having Ed Oliver, you guys just made us look absolutely foolish. Um, But like you were saying, also, you know, you have that interesting, you know, who's going to take a step up when the Rice offense is on the field and the UH defense is on the field. But yeah, like you know, Rice's, de- Rice's defense legitimately quite good last year. U of H's offense, I wouldn't say legitimately quite good last year, but a lot of interesting pieces and basically every serious contributor who played a fair amount at the end of the year back and with another year of experience in the scheme and, you know, a team that's in year three of a coach taking on a pretty serious rebuild versus a team in year two taking on maybe a more serious rebuild than it was thought when he got here. Yeah. It's interesting. One of the things that I said almost verbatim to my co-host when we left the just 100,000 degree just oven that was the Bayou Bucket 2018 game was that, you know, this Rice team is going to scare me in a couple of years, and I don't feel a lot different about that now than I did then, leaving Rice Stadium. Well, that's encouraging. You're hoping we get the chance to scare you. <laughs> right? Yeah, just any any chance to see football with the obvious caveats of, you know, it, it being done in a manner that is not putting any school, including our two respective schools, players in danger. All right. Well, we have been playing a a bit of a game at, with everybody as we close out. So we will we will put you up to it as well. We're calling it the lightning round, where quick, fast answers on your on your feet. No uh, pausing to uh, count the roses, uh, so to speak. And uh, we will hold all these answers against you if we do get a football season. Nice, God willing. Let's do know. it. <laughs> and maybe we will, even if we don't. So. I'm a fountain of bad takes, so let's just this is let's get, good. Let's get so, them all out in the open under, under the microscope. Do we have the record? We got the record button on? Oh, yeah. yeah? Okay, we're it good. certainly says it on my end, so I'm going <laughs> to act like I'm uh, Otherwise, man, putting this to the permanent record. Otherwise, man, whole thing again. <laughs> <laughs> I th- and I'm sure you, aside, I'm sure you've experienced this in, in pod take land, but I think, I think we've only had to, to redo one episode in its entirety since we started the show, so... Didn't we have to? I think we had to do the first year. We had to redo the first year of trivia with you. 
Oh, we did. I remember. It was, yeah, we, it was you versus the um, versus our U of H guy, Ryan from GoCookies dot com, and he. Uh, and ultimately, <laughs> we had to. We had to. Ultimately, so that was a game that officially happened and never happened. It was. It was a blast. <laughs> so but, yeah, I, and then, uh, that was I was what, victorious. I think, let the record show. Yep. Actually, I don't. I, I don't think I was. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure I lost that one on a close one. No, you had me name original members of the Whack. Was that it? Yes. Oh and man. The, the oh, one that God. actually got the one that actually got recorded, and you were a very good sport about this. So I want to you know butter you up. Uh, we were naming USC quarterbacks, and because John David Booty had gotten drafted, but had never compiled an NFL stat of any kind. The question, I think it was USC quarterbacks who've been drafted. Oh, that's you said, right. You said John David Booty, <laughs> and we were like, no, that's wrong. And you're like, oh, no, I think he was. And we looked, and we're like, wow, he got drafted and somehow didn't even get into a game in mop-up time. Incredible. So we got a UConn reference, a John David Booty reference. I, I can't I can't believe how much just random sports stuff I'm squeezing in here. This show has been everything I ever hoped it would we'll be. Get, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be sure to work in a Mitch Mustaine reference next time. There you go. Good stuff. All right, so uh, kicking off the, uh, we'll start you up with a nice, easy softball of the lightning round. So, uh, will the, fo- the 2020 football season be played? Yes. Yes. Are there going to be fans on the stand? No. All right. Who leads Houston in touchdowns this year? Are we? I, I know we're not supposed to. Are we just talking any, just total touchdowns? Of any yeah. Kind of talking. Okay. I mean, probably um, touch, touchdown scored. I was gonna. Okay. Um. We'll say Mark West Stevenson. This is a good choice. Uh, and then on the other side, who's going to lead the team in sacks? David and Nini. All right. And then if Houston doesn't win the AAC, just keeping you honest, who does? So I think uh, Cincinnati. All right. That's, that's a good a good pick. And then we've been going every realignment questions with CUSA folks, but I have a, 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 twist, a twist on it for you. Uh, by 2035, so that's in 15 years, are Rice and Houston ever going to play a conference game? Yes. Oh, please let it happen. If you said 2025, my answer, answer might have answer. been differently, but uh, you know, 2035, yep. You know, we don't know what's going to happen in six weeks, so True. why not? And then... Uh, gauging your your Holgerson feelings over under three and a half more years for Holgerson at Houston over a resounding that, over that that Tillman Fertitta money uh, is certainly not getting more plentiful during this uh, during this uh, <laughs> pandemic so debt hard over on that hey it could be worse we had uh, Adrian brought us from ESPN El Paso on several weeks ago. And he was bemoaning the state of Dana Dimmel's contract and basically saying he could go winless this season again. And he's still coming back in, in 2021 regardless. So imagine imagine knowing Dana Dimmel won eight games in, in three years at Houston, even in, as bad as we were in a state of in the early 2000s. <laughs> knowing that and just being like, yeah, no, I think we're going to give this guy the uh, keys to the house. Sorry. I mean, no. it wasn't like they probably had. A, I mean. Who who do you think wanted to go to you? Oh, that's true. That's true. You know, yeah, you got limited choices there. But even even still, kind of kind of raised my eyebrows when I saw Dana Dimmel was the choice. Todd Graham. <laughs> <laughs> All right. probably a better choice than Dana Dimmel. Probably not a better human, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Oh man. Well, uh, we will we'll call that a wrap, and that was a, uh, a successful run through the lightning round. We hope uh, most of your uh, predictions come to uh, fruition uh, for the sake of football being played. And and before we do get you out of here, we want to make sure that uh, I'm sure Houston fans listening to this podcast already know where to find you. But uh, where can we uh, catch you guys? Um, whether in podcast land or socials for anybody who wants to check you out. Sure. We're on uh, Twitter. We're most active at SH podcast, S H P A W D cast. We're on basically anywhere. There are podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google play, all those good places uh, the Scott and Holman podcast, uh, P A W D cast, because uh, we just love puns and wordplay so much. We're also on Facebook, but significantly less active there. Just search the Scott and Holman podcast. And you'll find us. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it in terms of socials and places you're going to find us. I think there's a pretty good chance that we'll be talking about rice football in that matchup here in a few weeks. But there's also a good chance we aren't just, you know, the fluid, the very fluid times in which uh, we are all living right now. As we said a million times, uh, we'll see. Absolutely. That's why we got you on now, because, you know, heaven forbid we don't get our UConn takes in. Or our Todd Graham <laughs> takes in with you and the season gets canceled. I would not stand for that. Truly. A tr- truly a tragedy. Uh, well, well, all right. Uh, thanks to Sam for hopping on with us. Uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Hopefully all y'all that are listening had fun with it too. Uh, we will be back next week and Rice Fight. This show was edited and produced by Carter Spires. It features music from Joseph McDade.